standard issue for all women. Well, hello there. Come on in. Welcome to episode 32 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I forgot I dropped a dead spider down the toilet last night and this morning genuinely thought I'd shot a spider. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and if it's okay with everyone, I'm going to speak exclusively about Hamilton from now on. And if it isn't okay with everyone, then at some point no one else will be in the room when it happens. Yeah, and fuck them. <laughs> and I'm Jen Offord and last night I dreamt I had a fact for today, but in fact it turns out it's not true. <laughs> I have not seen Simply Red twice in concert. I'm happy for you. I'm not. Would you, oh, wow, that's a, it's a whole podcast on its own as to why. Right. I've seen them once to. and it was a cracking time. Later on, we're joined by Lisa Hammond and Sheila Chandra to chat about being a disabled creative and also how to get the career help that you need. Dr Terry Simpkin tells us about imposter phenomenon and somehow cures me. Ooh. Travel writer Laura Jackson shares some corking tips on birds flying solo. And I do Disney's Tarzan. <laughs> Q Phil Collins. But first, school dinners, sex dolls, and seriously, Terry Gilliam, what is wrong with you? It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we slalom through a fresh deluge of shit in the hope of picking up some cheeky gold. But let's start with the shit. Just a couple of weeks after meat-faced jizz clown David Cameron congratulated George Osborne on finally reaching his austerity target, a Tory proposal looks set to make around a million kids go hungry. The successes just keep coming, eh, Georgie boy? I mean, I'm assuming the actual plan is to eliminate poverty by wiping out poor folk completely, right? The government's plans to introduce a net household earnings threshold of £7,400 to free school meal entitlement means that a lot of working families already struggling to make ends meet could lose what's nothing short of a lifeline. I got free school dinners. I got bullied to shit for it, but I got fed. And at a time when my working single mum was having to mostly feed us on porridge and unlabeled tin food she picked up cheap and sold to me as surprise tea, it was vital. This isn't a poor me whale. I'm doing all right. It's a poor us whale because society isn't doing all right. There are four million children in poverty in the UK, 67% of them in working families. The number of homeless people continues to rise, a lot of them in employment but still unable to afford even a hostel. Teachers and nurses are having to use food banks. The system is clearly fundamentally broken and yet the fucking Tories are patting each other on the fucking backs. Human kindness has never been more important. So I actually missed that in the news. So did he genuinely, David Cameron was like, hey, what um, got there in the end, pal. Send him a tweet. That is supremely ill-judged, isn't it? The policy that outlived either of their careers. Yeah. yeah. Meat-faced jizz clown. Quite. Speaking of which, Vladimir Putin, please don't kill me, (laughs) continued to laugh at us all last week after the international community assumed Russian agents were likely to have perpetrated a nerve agent attack on a former spy and his daughter on UK soil. Sergei Skrupal, I'm assuming that's how we say his name, uh, and daughter Yulia remained in a critical condition in hospital after being found unconscious on a park bench in Salisbury. Prime Minister Theresa May traded futile blows with the Russian leader and shirtless hunting enthusiast by expelling some diplomats and having the same number expelled back. Labour leader and people's princess Jeremy Corbyn pissed people off by saying perhaps we should chill our boots a bit before fucking Russia off too much. Foreign Secretary and bumbling fucknut Boris Johnson said we should boycott this summer's World Cup because that'll learn them. 
Meanwhile, White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders didn't really fucking know where she stood on it. Orcs. The Russian embassy in the UK recently tweeted, like just before we came to record, a picture of Pyro that said Salisbury possibly needs Pyro right now. So they're clearly taking it very seriously. <laughs> fucking hell. That is that is probably more awkward than the old US press secretary, isn't it? Anyway, elsewhere, tinfoil hat wearers across the land threw another possibility into the mix that the whole thing had been orchestrated by the UK government to take our minds off Brexit, as if they genuinely thought they might be competent enough to pull that off. So, should we have a little look and see what's happening in France? All right, then. Oh, my God, my eyes. Why? Why have I done this? In Paris, local councillors and feminists, and presumably feminist councillors, have called for the closure of a sex doll brothel, which recently opened its doors, as well as other artificial orifices. Ew. Clients pay up to £80 an hour for a go on the apparently (laughs) life-size... Stop it with your sexy talk. (laughs) On the apparently life-size and yet lifeless dolls. They're apparently hosed down after every use. Mm, And if you've heard anything more romantic this week, I want to hear it. The brothel's owner, Mr. Lousy, yep, that name makes you want to stick your dick near things he says are clean, (laughs) doesn't it? He says most of his customers were male business types aged between 30 and 50 and asked whether he thought the game centre added to the degradation of women. He said, I'm not the right person to respond to that. I'm not a sociologist or a philosopher or a psychologist. Actually quite impressive to see a man admit the not depth an expert, of, mate. Yeah, <laughs> the, the depth of his uh, ignorance. I don't know, actually. Oh, experts are overrated, aren't they? Quite. Yeah. Meanwhile, director Terry Gilliam is the latest in a string of pricks to speak out against the hashtag MeToo campaign. In an interview with AFP reported by Variety, the Monty Python star said that the campaign, aimed at raising awareness of sexual assault and abuse endured by women across the world and in all walks of life, which was in response to allegations made against the Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein, had turned into mob rule. He added that said mob was going to burn down Frankenstein's castle. Yeah, but Frankenstein. And I assume you're talking about the Doctor, not the Monster Tears, because it would be embarrassing to get that wrong, wouldn't it? Was a bit of a twat, wasn't he? Gilliam said, it's a world of victims. I mean, it, like, it, it actually literally is as well, to be fair, a world of victims. But anyway, let's not dwell on that. I think some people did very well out of meeting with Harvey, and others didn't. The ones who did knew what they were doing. These are adults. We are talking about adults with a lot of ambition. Rushing to the defence of Matt Damon, who was criticised earlier in the year for his comments about varying degrees of sexual assault, Gilliam added, He came out and said all men are not rapists, and he got beaten to death. Come on, this is crazy. And it's almost as crazy, I suppose, as one in five women aged between 16 and 59 in the UK experiencing sexual violence. Jesus, did I miss Matt Damon being beaten to death? It has been a busy news week. Yeah. Matt Damon. <laughs> <laughs> It'll never not be funny. <laughs> if more evidence were needed that not only has politics jumped the shark, but the shark is now running the whole shit show, a storyline straight out of House of Cards turns out to be true. Data whistleblower Christopher Wiley has revealed that millions of Facebook profiles, as in more than 50 million, 
were harvested by data miner Cambridge Analytica in order to build a software program to predict and influence votes at the ballot box for both the US presidential election and the EU referendum. Wiley told The Observer, We exploited Facebook to harvest millions of people's profiles and built models to exploit what we knew about them and target their inner demons. That was the basis the entire company was built on. It is psychological warfare and, quite frankly, fucking terrifying. Not to mention, a bit mystifying. How come the POTUS isn't a hilariously clumsy cat scared of cucumbers? Which would be way preferable. Also, I'd have taken a stock photo of a sunset and a shit inspirational meme over Brexit any day. Do you want a bit of good news? Yay. Yay! Tasmania has become the first state in Australian history to elect a majority of female MPs to its legislature. Whoop, whoop. The island state now has 13 female and 12 male representatives, which local politicians called overwhelmingly exciting. Next stop, world domination, eh? Sure. It's actually quite interesting because Tasmania has traditionally been... Yeah, they're sort of... ...been seen as the yeah. most sort of backwards thinking... They're the ones that Australians think are still in the 1950s. Well, yeah, I, I, I would say maybe there's, there's two. There's also Queensland, which has a kind of very sort of redneck reputation. But that's sort of more a, you know, Texas man's man thing. Whereas Tasmania, I think, has got kind of a reputation for, for just literally being in the, the Shetland 1950s. Islands. Yeah. Well, I don't know about how it's like in the Shetland. I've been to Tasmania and... The most exciting thing that happened when I was there that somebody had their spade stolen from their shed. So, you know. The Russian uh, embassy are going to send <laughs> Pyro <laughs> once they finish with him. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. Hi, it's that time of the week where we discover that Doctor Who is more famous than the Queen. Yes, indeed. Producers of the Netflix series The Crown revealed that they paid the star of the show, Claire Foy, less than they paid her co-star Matt Smith. Claire Foy plays the Queen and Matt Smith plays the Duke of Edinburgh, just so you know. They have an excuse for this and that is that Matt Smith was apparently a bigger star than Claire Foy was. This was Netflix's excuse. I've actually seen some people on Twitter making the same excuse. I don't think that is a valid excuse for a number of reasons. Number one, if you make a series about the Queen, the Queen is the star. Not even the people that are in it are the stars. It's the Queen. In the same way that Doctor Who is the star of Doctor exactly. Who. Exactly. It doesn't matter who Doctor Who is. If you really like the show, you will watch it. My mum is the audience for this. She doesn't even know who Matt Smith is. I'd put good money on that. So the audience comes built in. Number two, this is Netflix. So it has an entirely different model for how it makes money than all other things. So actually, it doesn't depend on viewers for advertising rates. It doesn't depend on people watching it on the night it's on for advertising rates. It can afford to have a word-of-mouth show that grows because it remains and people can watch it six months later, a year later, two years later. It doesn't make any difference. And the third thing that really fucks me off about this is this, this carried on for two series. Now, at the end of the first series... Claire Foy won a Golden Globe Award. She won a Screen Actors Guild Award. She was nominated for an Emmy and she was nominated for a BAFTA. And when she didn't win the BAFTA, and it was won by Sarah Lancashire, Sarah Lancashire said in her speech, I'd like to thank Claire Foy for giving me the most enjoyable 10 hours I ever spent under a duvet. If that's not a reason to pay her the same amount of money as Matt Smith, the endorsement of Sarah Lancashire, I don't know what it is. They say it won't happen again. 
and that from now on in, the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh will get the same wages. I'm fairly sure that in real life, the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh do not earn the same amount of money. Exactly. And the point is, Claire Foy and Matt Smith have now left. So it won't, will make no demonstrable difference to her. And I can't help but think that's somewhat closing the stable door after the horse has been recast. Can I ask, under what circumstances they made this revelation? Were they caught out, basically? And I think they, they were asked. To... Okay. They didn't specify what the difference in wages was, mm. but that, yes, she had got paid less than he had. Were they, like, banking on a few massive Whovians just going, oh, Doctor Who's in this thing about this bird who, like, runs a country... I'm not really sure about the details, but Matt <laughs> Smith's in it, so the, I am going to watch it. The, I mean, it's literally... it's The thing about The Crown is it looks like a BBC production... So it gets that audience, that audience, I guaranteed it, regardless of who's in it. Genuinely, it could be utter nobody's in it. And people would say, oh, there's this thing about the Queen's life. They like that sort of thing. They're going to watch it. Twats. (laughs) That was so beautifully beautifully eloquent, wasn't it? And then just twats. Hi, we've been joined in the studio today by Dr. Terry Simpkin who is the Senior Lecturer in Leadership and Corporate Education at Anglia Ruskin University. And she has come here to talk to us today about imposter syndrome. So probably the best place to start would be, I really want to say, who the fuck are you? (laughs) Who the fuck are you? Have you got any idea on you? Coming in here telling us. Yeah, Um, just load it on the shoulders, yeah. What is imposter syndrome? Firstly, you've never identified as a, as a syndrome. It's actually a phenomenon, but I think phenomenon seems to you know, roll off the tongue like a brick and people tend to, to like the idea of, of saying something more easily. So the imposter syndrome it is. It was first developed uh, or first identified in the 1970s by a lady called um, Pauline Rose Clance, and she looked at it in terms of high-achieving women. She had this this research idea about why people at the top end of their game were actually feeling like frauds. And her research essentially encapsulated the idea that it is a an intense feeling of intellectual fraudulence or phoniness. And it is often, and more often than not, in the face of objective measures of success. So you'll see these outwardly confident, highly successful people who have actually been objectively identified as, as highly functioning, highly successful, when they're still feeling that they're not, they're not worthy of that. Is this something you came to from a place of personal experience? Yeah, funnily enough, yeah. <laughs> um, it, I remember sitting in my car once I was just about to hand in my PhD. So I'd gone through a couple of degrees. I'd you know, spent five years you know, investigating the topic that I was looking at. And I sat in my car for about half an hour plucking up the courage to actually go and put this thing in, my thesis in, because I thought once I actually hand that in, then everyone's going to know I've been gaming them for the last five years, that I really shouldn't have been doing this in the first place. It was all I could do to get myself out of the car and actually hand this thing in for for marking because once it was out there, it was out there and I would be exposed. And so I walked away thinking, oh, my God, you know, for the next two months I'm going to have to sit waiting on the, the marks to come in and I know that they're going to come back saying, what were you thinking? How, how could you possibly believe yourself to be worthy enough to actually do this? Uh, as it happened, it came back really excellent. Uh-huh. <laughs> it came back excellent, but that that started me thinking: what is what is going on, um, you know, between my own ears? And indeed, is there you know, a, you know, a name for it? And are other people actually experiencing it? The name imposter phenomenon seemed to sort of, or imposter syndrome as it is more commonly referred to, mm. cropped up about three or four years ago. It suddenly started getting written about 
maybe, even though you said it's from the 70s. Why do you think it's reared its head now? That's a really good question. I, I think it's because Thanks. people are starting... <laughs> I wasn't you can, sure. You, you can <laughs> take yeah. that. <laughs> um, I, I think it's because women are starting to re- examine reasons as to why perhaps we're not seeing women in uh, on boards, on you know, on councils, on in senior leadership roles. We know from 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 uh, research that you know, women sort of get to middle management and tend not to make it into senior management. And I think there's a a real examination of why that is. And of course, now we've got. And, you know, just of late, you know, the Me Too movement and a whole raft of other reasons to be looking at women's experience. But I, but I think that there's a, a groundswell of interest as to why it is that we're not seeing women making the sorts of contributions that they could make because of, you know, structural inefficiencies or, or societal expectations or indeed um, you know, women feeling perhaps not as, um, as confident as they, as they could be. And I think that there's a, a lot of criticism around this idea that women aren't confident. My research suggests that women are confident. They're just butting up against societal expectations and workplace expectations that confirm that they, perhaps they shouldn't be in the positions that they're in. So... The the word that you've used a lot there is women, and mm. it does seem to affect women more. More women seem to think that they or, or feel like imposters. Yeah, it's it, the, the jury's out on that. There's research that has come since that first research on high achieving women. It's been done on men, managers, PhD students, uh, people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, and so the there isn't evidence that suggests that women experiencing it more than men. I tend to think personally that it is um, experienced differently from men. And I think that's because, uh, again, that we've got the, the gender double whammy. We've got particularly in um, you know, occupations where women traditionally weren't very visible, that they're coming up against workplace and societal expectations that are confirming their sense of being an imposter rather than challenging it, which they might not come across if they were in either more traditional occupations or indeed if they were experiencing the workforce the way that men do. And we know that's different. How, how common do you think it is? A, again, you know, there's research which suggests that about 70% of people were experiencing it at some point in their career. And so, that's men and women. That's men and, and mm-hmm. women. But that's at some point. And, you know, it, it's it's difficult to to identify it as imposter phenomenon rather than just plain self-doubt, which is fairly normal. My research suggests, um, and this is based on a sample of about uh, 550 women from all over the world in STEM occupations, um, about 89% of them will be experiencing either um, uh, frequent or moderate uh, experiences of, of feeling like a phony. It must be really damaging because I think particularly if you if you're smart and you believe something, you look for stuff to back it up. Yeah, and this this is what I've been looking at in my research is is that we go back to this idea of sense making. The way that we see the world comes from how we're taught about life from our parents and from school and from university and the world around us. And so sense making isn't based on reality or accuracy. It's based on what we think is plausible. And so if you're in a if you're a sole woman in a highly male dominated environment, it's it's implausible that you should be there. And so our sense of sense making will fill in the gaps and and make that imposter right. Yeah. So you're looking for things that actually back up your idea of being a fake. 
Why can't we use that to back up our idea that maybe we should be there in the first place? Because it's implausible. Right. Society, society says it's implausible that, you know, women should be astronauts. It's implausible that we should have, you know, 70% of women on boards globally. It's implausible because the numbers aren't there. We're not seeing it. Of course, it is. It's possible and mm-hmm. it's desirable and there's no reason as in terms of competence why women shouldn't be in these positions. But because we've not seen it, because historically, you know, we've, we've not been in those sorts of positions... It's implausible. We're socially conditioned. We're socially to not conditioned. They, they reckon that women won't apply for a job if they, unless they hit a certain number of criteria, whereas men will just apply for a job if they think they can do it. Even if it says of... it's for women only, yeah. the men That's will still exactly apply right. for a job. Yeah, I mean, it said that you know, women won't apply unless they've got 100% plus, plus yeah. and they'll make excuses as to why they shouldn't, whereas you know, the experience of men is, is much less. They've got much more... And it's again, it's put down to confidence, but I, I don't think it is. I think it's if you're actually going to have to put yourself out there and be scrutinised, that you, you know, particularly if you're carrying around, you know, experiences of the of being an imposter, then you want everything to be ticked. And one of the the characteristics of of IP is this this need to be right all the time, special and perfect. And none of those things exist in humans. It it, it just doesn't That's happen. That's my CV. You just have <laughs> my CV out. It's kind of interesting. Is there a difference because women basically, I feel like women are disproportionately told, no, you can't do that. Quite quite possibly. I mean, the other thing is that it acts out in, in, a, in a type of cycle. Mm. So you end up sort of going through a, a, a range of behaviours which will just keep perpetuating themselves. And again, I don't think men necessarily feel it the same way that women do because of those societal expectations and a, and a, a you know, a history that ne- didn't have you know, women's voices in. If we're looking at the workforce, for mm. example, it's really only in the, in the recent past that we've actually seen women entering the workforce in any huge numbers. And so their experience of the workforce has, hasn't fed into the structures and processes that we use. And one of the, 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 the people that I spoke to in my, in my research basically said, when they're talking about performance management, which you would expect is a good place for somebody to actually get some really good feedback and to feel warm and fuzzy about their experiences and their, their successes and walk away thinking, oh, good, I'm, I'm good at what I do. Women were actually telling me, my boss doesn't know what I do, therefore any good feedback that he gives me, I have to discount because how would he know? Which just feeds into my sense of being an imposter yeah. again. Yeah. And so the the workplace practices that we've set up for ourselves don't necessarily align with the way that, that people are coming to the workforce. It's mm. it's we just exist in a world that doesn't you know um, stack up against the processes that we we built for our workplaces fifty years ago. So coming back to your question, I think that men do come to it with a sense of of. I use the term advisedly, a sense of confidence than perhaps women have not necessarily developed. And and I'm not suggesting that's all women because, you know, again, in conversations with women, in their quiet moments, they could say, one woman actually said, logically, I know that I can take on the world, but I'm just waiting for someone to tap me on the shoulder and tell me I'm a fraud. So there's this there's this duality there's this i know i could actually do that job but i'm not sure i'm going to yeah. necessarily be allowed to in the environment that i'm working mm. with or in in the society that that i that i'm you know, engaging with and that's 
that's really profound for me because this idea of women not having confidence, that sort of shakes that a little bit because I think it's not so much about confidence in themselves. They know they've got confidence in themselves. I knew I had confidence to, to you know, get my PhD. It was now that I've put it out to the world, is is my capacity to to engage with the world or make the world see that I'm capable enough is that going to be good enough? Is, is what I've what I've done there going to be good enough for that? And so it's not so much confidence, mm. it's self-efficacy, the capacity to make other things work in concert with my own quiet confidence. Because it's interesting as well, because you, you, you say about getting feedback from your boss. I mean, some people, and I am definitely one of them, just aren't particularly good at taking compliments. You, so you're, that little part of your brain shuts off and you're like, oh, I find this excruciatingly embarrassing. I would actually at points rather be bollocked than I would be praised because it's just really to me I just find it really awkward so I suppose if my brain shuts off those bits Mm. I'm not even taking in the good stuff I'm just taking in the negative and not the the hey you are actually other people might be telling me I'm doing a good job but what I'm actually doing is not listening yeah Um, and and again another participant basically suggested to me when I asked her how do you accept you know, positive feedback. And she said, my toes are curling just thinking about it. She said, I can't, yeah, I can't do it. It's it is so quite cold in here, but I am also doing that as well. Like yes. cringing. Cringing. Yeah. Well, and this is, a, an, you know, another key characteristic that people who, who believe themselves to be imposters or frauds or fakes will automatically externalise that, that success. So they come up and say, oh, you did a really good job on that. Oh, no, it wasn't me. It was the team. Oh, no, I just got lucky. It, that wasn't, yeah. it wasn't down to my capacities. Oh, it was somebody else. It was something else. It was in the right place at the right time. Yeah. And so there's this, this externalisation of that praise or success. But when it comes to failure, that's all mine. I did, I did, you know, don't look at that bit because that's not quite right. And yeah. that bit, that didn't go as well as it should have. And, and actually pointing it out as yeah, well. Yeah, identifying, because what you're doing is you're making your story right. My story is that I'm an imposter. So here's all this evidence to suggest that I'm not as good as you think I am. So Terry, how do we counter it oh, within God. ourselves? <laughs> Help me, Terry. <laughs> Terry, <laughs> stop saying it was more by luck than judgment. Yeah. <laughs> Going back to, to where these stories come from. Really sitting down, having a good hard think about why is it that that you're unable to take pride or to even just accept the um, the, the praise or the compliments. Your childhood is, is a really good place to start. Having a think about how how praise was and success was dealt with in the family. So was it something that was, you know, a positive experience for you? Are we, are we solving Hannah? I don't know. <laughs> Could you imagine? I might be in a, How much money do you want for this? <laughs> you saved yeah. me a fortune. Yeah, you haven't like, seen my oh, invoice yet. <laughs> someone compliment her and see what happens. <laughs> Note, identifying when that happens to yourself and, and don't go to what I call the confidence afterburn. It's when somebody says, you did a good job, your automatic reaction will be, oh, no, it was something else. Oh, I got lucky. I was yeah. in the right place at the time. What a fluke that was. Stop yourself from saying that and say, thank you. Go on, try it. Thank you. <laughs> it takes effort. And, and you know, sometimes examining what, what has gone on in your childhood and in perhaps your early life and schooling, and you know, that, that can be really quite confronting for people because it means that at some point or another, someone that you trusted to tell you the right thing about the world was actually not as good as they should have been but, but yeah, Perry, seriously there's got to be a time where I can lock that box and never have to look in it yeah. ever again. what else are you up to Terry out of the research it was it was too valuable to just leave to an academic examination and given that people were saying like you what can I do about this uh, I've been doing 
um, you know, public lectures and, and uh, working with um, uh, women in STEM, so looking at how we can actually get more women and girls into STEM occupations and going right back to the, to to kids in schools and working with kids in schools to to get them to understand that you know it's not just about certain groups of the community who should be you know involved in this type of thing but also I've got a, a website called Braver Stronger Smarter uh, which looks at programs or develops has developed a program to actually help women find out how it's actually come to be and what they can actually do about dot it .com .org.co.uk.com that I mean, it is so fascinating. It has, I feel. Mm. I actually, and I think you've cured Hannah. Yeah. And maybe you could just hang around afterwards and sort me out. Yeah. That'd be great. <laughs> Hello, Hannah and I are joined by author and career coach Sheila Chandra and actor and theatre maker Lisa Hammond. You probably know as Donny Yates off of that EastEnders. Hello. Hello. Thanks very much for joining us. You're welcome. <clears throat> Let's dive straight in. Tell us a bit about the work you're doing supporting disabled creatives. I'm a creative career coach and I don't specifically aim at helping disabled creative people but my two most famous mentees and coaches happen to be two disabled people. One of them is the lovely Lisa and the uh, and her lovely uh, comedy partner Rachel Spence and or, who's not disabled but the other one is Stick, the street artist who's one of Britain's best known street artists who was homeless when I met him. Out of my mentoring with him came a book, Organising for Creative People, and he's now, you know, one of the most collectible street artists in the world and, and is internationally acclaimed. He got there in about five years. He's seriously dyslexic and became homeless as a result. So, yeah, he, he kind of really needs some career guidance to, to, to get back on his path. I'd like to be coached by, <laughs> by this team. <laughs> I think Sheila's probably taking clients, Hannah. Yeah. Although your biggest challenge yet, <laughs> Hannah I'm doesn't sure leave me. Sure. Stick identify himself as being disabled in a sense. I don't know if he uses that particular label. I mean, although he's very secretive about mm. who he really is, his real name, and where he really comes from, he does own up to the dyslexic label and acknowledges how difficult that made running his life as a young adult when he when he slid into homelessness and remained there for about ten years. And he's also been very upfront about the fact that he's had mental health issues, which kind of mm. produced a confluence with the with the dyslexic issues. I'm disabled. It took me a long time because I wasn't born disabled to come to that. Mm. heading for myself I have a chronic pain condition which is triggered by speech it happened quite dramatically right well the first bit of it did I I was in a a car crash and I had a detached retina an emergency operation for the detached retina and the uh, whoever intubated me scarred my vocal cords on the way down because I was a singer I had an international career as a singer in in world music I was signed to Peter Gabriel's real world label uh, or I was signing albums to them I owned them and I was signing them to him and was one of their bestsellers at the time and it limited my vocal stamina and of course I kept performing I didn't hurt my vocal cords but I kept kind of spraining the mechanism around them over and over and primed my system for pain and then in 2010 I developed burning mouth syndrome which is a neurological condition in the mouth it's like taking a a huge gulp of scalding hot tea you know that feeling yeah it's like that and and for me unfortunately it's triggered by talking so I only do it a limited amount but if I didn't do it at all then my whole vocal system would atrophy so have to talk sometimes oh no so it's like sort of damned if you do damned if you don't Yes, you can't really avoid the pain. It actually, ironically, makes me a better coach because I coach people all over the world by Skype video. I haven't actually met Lisa since she came to a talk I did at Foils in August, but I coached 
her and Rachel Spence by Skype video I type the client the, the coachee talks and so there's no small talk we concentrate on them the only time I talk when I'm coaching is if I've got an example or a very complicated com- concept to explain and it would take too long to type or yeah. would make you laugh yeah or, <laughs> that was a huge problem <laughs> <laughs> I was like Sheila shh <laughs> Lisa, what is it like for creative disabled people out there? How does the land lie? Christ, how long you got on that one? <laughs> well, I've got the stream for 20 minutes. Mate. Okay, it's really tough. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, depending because I do sort of multiple strains of it. I'm an actress, but I also make my own theatre shows and I write. So I've got sort of different fingers in different pies. And I would say generally it's quite depressing still in terms of representation about being offered roles and which sort of leads you to or led me to doing it myself right that's what I was going to ask that's what if you write your own roles yeah I mean that's hard as well but um you know I come from a sort of devising improvising background so me and a friend we met 15 years ago Rachel Spence as Sheila mentioned and we both really liked working together and that was just the seed of an idea that we went well why should, should we do some more of that over the years we've we've done um lots of projects together we've just done a tv pilot that's on all four or youtube called lowdown so check it out it's part of the um, comedy blaps yeah. series isn't it yeah um, on channel four yeah and it's great yeah we loved it and it was our first dipping of toes into the world of telly because we've both been actresses on shows on the telly but we haven't took something that we've made from the start into that genre so it was a bit scary and a bit like oh my god yeah because you when you self-describe you said theatre maker Mm. so I guess you've been writing for the stage not for telly or film yes that's sort of our our normal thing so I'm still trying to get my head around the fact that that might be a thing for telly as well because you you know when you're a bit unconfident about something you're like yeah I did a little thing But yeah, that's part of what connects me and Sheila, which is Rachel and I's relationship with our work in general, all of the different strands of our work, and trying to have a plan moving forward in terms of career goals, what we want next, being clearer about what we want, mapping out our future, which is where we connected with Sheila, which has been great because it sort of boils boils because I, I think we, we talked about this a lot in, in, in our first session how actors can be quite reactive to things rather than proactive like you tend to sort of take what's brought your way rather than going oh I want that and go after that it's been a really interesting process with Sheila guiding us through it we're at the beginnings of our process working through Sheila's book have you seen an improvement in attitudes towards disabled creatives because you've had quite a long career yeah even for someone 24 years yeah I was gonna say for someone as young as you you've had quite a long career is it is are things getting better do you know it's quite a hard one to answer because you do see tiny changes but you still see the same seven different debates and panel discussions and hand wringing and you know, oh, how's it? Oh, how are we going to do it? How are we going to do it? You know, disabled, funny, ha ha, funny, peculiar. How are we going to represent? It's a lot of talk and not a lot of action in my experience of it. 
And it is, you know, like you've got Cherylee Houston on Coronation Street, I'm on EastEnders, you've got Liz Carr on Silent Witness. few different people are coming through, but there's still the, the block in terms of just casting disabled actors as non-disabled parts. That's the what the friend of the show, friend Liz Carr. Friend of the show, Liz Carr, yeah. has always said it's... No she, friend of mine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she, oh, thinks, <laughs> she thinks that progress will have been made at the point you turn on television and they, a, a disabled person is in the drama and it's absolutely nothing to do with the human body. Yes. It's not to do with a medical drama or, you yeah. know, it's to do with, hey, I'm just a person in a wheelchair or I'm just a... Yeah, of course. It's any kind of it's any kind of ism. You need uh, systemic change, which Mm. means you need not just education. You need people in positions of power, who are commissioning things from a point of knowledge, either their own or from someone that they love, but who are who are who have kind of dealt with their own internal ableism before they start unconsciously projecting that all over scripts and parts yeah. and what have you. And you need writers, but you need commissioners and writers basically at that level. It's just as simple as I've been banging on about this for years. It simply is a case of normal people, normal writers write their scripts. They write human beings. The casting directors or the writer chooses two out of the 70 characters, whatever, and gives it to someone who's disabled that would instantly change the world and yet there is all this and it's difficult because it's again it's a chicken and egg situation we can't as disabled actors get in the room for non-disabled parts so characters that aren't written as disabled but then when they're written as disabled they're often played by able-bodied actors yeah so you're not you're getting sort of blocked both ways round. And this happens with race too. I yeah, mean, yeah. brown face is still a thing, I, you know, mm. and yellow face in Hollywood. Black face, not so much, but, you know, it still happens. And that's outrageous. Mm. Yeah. Because you started off as a child actor. I did. Right? I started out in Grange Hill. Same as me. Yeah, we were the same era, unfortunately. We're like twins, Sheila. You've got chronic pain, I've got chronic pain, we're both brain chillers. Yeah. I don't know if you know, but there's actually only one of you here. <laughs> Weird. Except I can't sing. Not only have been able to. But Grange Hill is 40 years old. Oh, this year, it. I know. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, looking back, oh, though, it... It was pretty groundbreaking telly, yeah. I think. Because you were one of the first disabled characters that they had in Grange Hill, but they were certainly setting yeah. their stall out. Me and Francesca Martinez, um, who's a stand-up comic and writer yeah. now, she and I went up for the same role, and she got the original role that was cast, and I got written in because they said, oh, great, let's have her as well. So she got the original part, and we, and then, yeah, that's how You we must met. have really yeah. impressed them then. Well, she's just a really mouthy cow. <laughs> Do you know, that's how I got through. Is it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is. I had gone through so many auditions and been so nervous and been absolutely rubbish. And I and then I went up for Grange Hill. It was the second series, so it was absolutely huge. I thought, there's absolutely no yeah. chance of me getting this. And there was only one other Asian girl in the room auditioning at the same time. They gave us a script to read, and she kept forgetting her line, so I kept elbowing her under the table and giggling. <laughs> and that got me through. Uh, so how old were you? Sorry. Uh, would have been 13. Oh, my God. So, so was this around sort of gripper, Zamo time? This when? is Tucker and... Tucker and... Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, I was slightly later, early 90s, like 93, yeah, 92. Was it a good experience? 
For me, it was torture because I was an introvert. I was extremely introverted. Really? And, yeah, and I grew out of that, but but I clearly, was very sharp. <laughs> yeah, you can't shut me up now. But um, yeah, it was fun because you ran a lot of people who were kind of on all the time. The kind of people who open the fridge door in the middle of the night and do ten minutes. You know that kind of person. <laughs> and that was fun. And there was a lot. There was a, there were a lot of japes, but but it was also quite you know a lot for me to cope with because I was so introverted. Mm-hmm. That is quite a career change around to go from someone who is introverted and shy to sort of, I guess with career coaching, you're teaching people to set their own goals and have the confidence to achieve them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of people come to me and say, oh, I've got a problem with getting to this next level of the industry. What about strategy and stuff like that? And then we dig a little deeper and quite often there's a block deep within them, Mm. which we can also work on. And it's that awareness thing, isn't it? I think some people, they like to play to their strengths all the time. They almost don't want to become aware or concentrate or put the spotlight on places where actually they're quite weak. But if they have the courage to do that, sit with the discomfort a little, they can really broaden the range of what they're capable of achieving in their industry. Mm -hmm. I have really bad hearing. And people will say something to me. Yeah. And I'll say, I'm sorry. And then they'll say it again. No louder. And then you'll say, I'm sorry, I didn't get that. And they'll go, oh, don't bother then. You're like, well, if, if it was important enough to say aloud, either say it at volume. I'm really sorry if I'm asking you to make the effort to actually speak at an audible volume. But people get really funny about it. And people will get really sort of exasperated with you in the... Oh, I just, I just leave it. It wasn't important. And they kind of forget that the world has been built around their ability. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The weight of a door, the way it swings, the width of a door, the number of steps, the the, the height of, of steps, the fact that you know, quite often, it's certainly in cities, if you're going down a steep, steep slope, there will be a railing. You know, if you're if you're not non-sighted, a lot of communication these days is is written, and and you need special aids to to actually access it. But people forget that they are being catered to all the time, mm. yeah. and because it's so ubiquitous, because there is this assumption around what is normal. And another thing is, you know, they don't realise that disabled people sometimes call them the not yet disabled because when we get old. A lot of us lose those abilities. Yeah, I, I quite. I mean, I have to say, I think personally, it's one of those things for me that when people make statements about the amount of cuts that have happened, and people will voice an unsympathetic. Mm. Now, you know, you are proof of there, but for the grace of God, go all of us. You yep. will eventually. I hope that when you end up in a situation where you end up claiming off that, mm. you don't get it. If that was your attitude, yeah. If your attitude was sort of any of yeah. us could walk now and come down no, the stairs and that would be that that could be yes, absolutely they don't, life-changing they don't realize that and all it yeah. takes is a bang on the head or something and yeah. you lose the ability to make decisions and you're in serious trouble yeah and so are all your relationships and your employment potential and you know that is serious but you know disability hate crime has increased exponentially mm. since 2010 really yeah yes we're yeah, talking about it. people shoving blind people oh, with canes yeah. into traffic what yes Yes, we're talking serious Green. disability aid crime. Mm-hmm. And it's because of government rhetoric around scroungers. Right. And mate crime as well goes up where people pretend to be people's friends. And, yeah, what is mate it's crime? It's shocking. It's, it's like, it um, happens to a lot of learning disabled people where groups of young people, not necessarily always young people, but pretend to be their friends and get them to do stuff that basically shows them up or they beat them up or they and they film it and put it on you know <laughs> and stuff that is horrific it, yeah 
That really is. Yeah. I don't know how people end up with this attitude of they it's just... It's fear. It's complete fear. Like, I went to the... Uh, you know, I was in a mainstream primary school, but my secondary school, I my local comp, they, can you believe this? They had a lift, but they wouldn't let students use it. So... That's basically why I had to go to a special needs school. They wouldn't even let you... They because, wouldn't let any students yes. use it. Oh, that's ridiculous. So that's how arbitrary the rules were around What Was that. there, like, porn playing in it? So I you know. had to be over 18? Honestly, it was crazy. So I think I it's probably like up. my dad in his car. He wouldn't let us press any buttons. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Some person at the top made a decision and yeah. blah, blah, blah on my behalf. And anyway, I'd, I ended up having an operation and my stamina went down. So I couldn't have gone to that school anyway. I ended up in an awful, awful special needs school with virtually no career prospects and you couldn't even get above like a certain, I think it was G or something in maths because they didn't cater for it. I mean, horrific experiences That is terrible. There. Like because one person had a dietary issue, you weren't allowed salt, pepper or sauce on your food. And what, I, what I'm talking about there is so there was a mainstream comprehensive like about 300 yards over the road and this is how far the fear goes back about us not being connected our lunch break had to be staggered for the older kids because the teachers said that if we were let out at the same time as them we would get beaten up so They've made, people higher up have made that decision without the benefit of the two schools just getting on with it. And they've built that division. They've built the division without even knowing that's going to happen. So if you, as the disabled child, hear, oh my God, I'm going to get beaten up if I go out at lunchtime and we we see that builds fear in you. Yeah. Those children who never see the other children, then that builds fear in them. It's like there's so many levels of... And I guess that goes into what Sheila was saying about the government rhetoric. is exa- It's just doing that again. Yeah, it's just it, building those divisions. It, has it is. Direct uh, but I think there's a, there, what Lisa says is right. There's a very primal issue going on. And I, uh, as a person who became disabled, I've seen it. If you fulfil a certain set of roles, you're a singer and you're identified with that. Mm. For instance, you make certain people a lot of money because you know they're affiliated with what you do. Or that they simply associate you with that. <clears throat> you know, you know how it is in the creative industries. It's oh, what are you doing now? And everybody gets a bit awkward if you're not doing mm-hmm. stuff because they feel a bit vulnerable as well. Because it's kind of an acknowledgement of how much, uh, how how um, up and down levels of work can be, and they feel vulnerable about that. And the same sort of projection goes on with when you can't work. If it's temporary, it's fine. But if it goes on and on and on you get people unconsciously projecting their fear about becoming ill or disabled or their role changing or, every, as you said, everything changing in a moment. I think it's actually about us not talking about injury, the fragility of bodies and death. You know, we don't deal with these issues very well. We live in an actually quite macho culture where we see superheroes doing things that, you know, would break our hands or all the bones in our hands or what have you and there's never any you never see a superhero green room where they're all sitting there going ow that really hurt (laughs) and now I won't be able to play for like I won't be able to work for six months while all these bones heal there's that kind of 
we kind of expect, especially when we're young and we think we're invincible and immortal, immortal yeah. there's that kind of expectation that there will never be any consequence for treating our bodies badly. And it is a particularly masculine, that whole thing of men not wanting to go to the doctor, it's, it is a particularly masculine thing, I think. When someone in your life changes role dramatically because they've become disabled, it can wreck... I mean, not just employment prospects. It can wreck relationships. and Lots of friends drift away because lots of friends don't have an experience with a disabled person. And actually, there was a survey done quite recently about disability and socialising. And very few people know a disabled person and socialise with a disabled mm-hmm. person. And if that person is not coming to your house, you're not going out to the pub with them or you're not going to the theatre with them or whatever, then... Yeah, then, 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 as we said, that's that sort of social division, and you never learn to become comfortable with it, and you never face your own projection. Mm. Crikey, we're going to have to wrap it up, and I'm really sad that we have to wrap it up. Yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, where can we find out more about you and what you're up to? Let's start with Sheila. Uh, well, you can find me at um, sheilachandracoaching.com, um, and uh, I'm taking on new clients at the moment because I only launched my. Although I've been mentoring people for the last 15 years informally, I only launched in January. I'm also on at the uh, London Wellbeing Mind Body Spirit Fair on the 26th of May, which is a a Saturday uh, in the mid afternoon. So if you'd like to come and if you're a creative person, you have a career and you're thinking of having a creative career and you want to come and it will be mostly a workshop. So bring your questions and we'll sit and work them out with the audience as to you know where you need to go next. Fantastic. Great, do it. Lisa, what about you? (laughs) So you can see me in EastEnders. Oh, yeah. Right now, being a gobby cow. (laughs) Um, And uh, on Twitter, um, Lisa Hammond, whoop. And you can see my pilot with Rachel Spence, Low Down. It's on, you can get it on the Channel 4, all four website or YouTube. Three mini, little mini apps, you can see that. And then in the future, we've got in development loads of other theatre stuff. So I'm sure I'll be promoting the hell out of it on my and Twitter, Twitter page. Right. So keep in touch. Hello, we are joined in the studio by Laura Jackson, freelance travel writer. All right, Laura. Hello. Full confession time. Laura is a really good pal of mine. She's lovely. You've come in to talk to us about solo travel as a woman. I was trying to do it in a Kilroy Silt manner there. Kilroy as a woman. As a woman. As a woman. I am indeed a woman and I do travel on my own. So, yeah. Oh my God, well, the is... authorities heard of this. This is crazy talk. Mm. It's not a surprise that women travel on their own, but people are still surprised by it when I was in Cuba mm-hmm. I got told about four times that I was really brave and I was like I'm not in a Syria in a war zone saving children I'm literally having a lovely holiday anyway Laura tell us about your solo travel adventures well I traveled a little bit on my own before but the kind of real turning point for me was in September 2015 when I went to New York on my own and I basically booked it because I'd had what I now refer to as the badness which was basically a few years of Having got divorced, I'd had to move house. I'd moved out of an area of town that I really loved living in and I was basically just working all of the time. Mm -hmm. And I think I decided I really, really wanted to go to New York and I was really sad about the fact that I just didn't have anyone to go with. And in the end, I basically just had a kind of moment where I was like, I just really need to go and do this by myself. I guess when you first travel on your own, it's, it's a bit terrifying, it can be a bit frightening. And... 
yet I got to New York and I realised that all of those doubts were just absolutely rubbish and that this was going to be the absolute holiday of a lifetime. And it really was. I had four days of kind of obligation-free joy. For me, what that trip did was kind of solidify the fact that it was okay to be on my own and that no matter what else happened in my life, I would never again in my life be phased by having to spend time in my own company. And it was just an incredibly cathartic trip. And I've been travelling on and off by myself for the last couple of years, really. I wouldn't say I prefer it. It's just a different experience. And I think I mentioned about the kind of obligations. I feel like when I go on my, away on my own, I don't have to answer to anybody. I can just do whatever the heck I like. For example, staying out really late, getting up really late, hanging out in a hotel if I want to. The other thing I find just really liberating about it is that you can just do something on the spur of the moment. You don't have to feel like you've got to accommodate anyone else's whims or needs you can just do whatever you want and while that is incredibly selfish it is also at the same time it's a wonderful wonderful experience to have i say i'm a big fan of going on holiday by myself Mm -hmm. because if you're spending a lot of money on something and if you spend a huge proportion of the time either everybody faffing about what everyone's going to do for the day or secondly doing something you don't actually want to do for the day then what was the point of spaffing 600 pounds on a flight when you got there and you've like this hasn't really been my holiday mm-hmm. yeah so yeah i'm a big fan yeah cat herding on holidays yeah. you do not need to do that I, I, I went to australia by myself for a year i would say there were bits of it that i wouldn't have done by myself we did a lot of drive i met some people who were also by themselves and we made a little group and we got a car and we traveled in that for about three months with each other i don't know that i'd have done that by myself considering that i actually did we did actually break down and we had to be rescued by just a passing truck driver who helped us out. Now, I think I would have shit myself if I'd been by myself and a, a truck driver had stopped. But the fact that there were four of us, you thought, you know, this is going to be OK. I think this will be it will be fine. But- I think that's the joy of going on holiday or traveling on your own, because I traveled on my own to South America for three months. But again, met up with other people who were traveling. Mm-hmm. You can hang out with them if you want to or you can not hang out with them if you don't want to. Yeah. There is that option of making pals and buddying up and doing a bit of a journey with them or then just going, right, I, I owe you nothing, you're just new in my life and I'm off now. Because when it's with people, I think, especially if you, like, I like to be roughly organised and know what I'm doing because... This is news to me. On holiday, well, I went on a road trip around America for, like, three weeks in May last year and I knew where I was going every single day because otherwise... I was going to get at end a point where I ended up in Philadelphia and went, shit, I've got 12 hours left. Hello, Philadelphia, and goodbye. You've got to be kind of organised when you're doing that. But I find that as well as doing things that you don't want to do because you're trying to please other people, there's also that horrible thing of you want to do something and everybody comes with you and they make it really obvious that they're not enjoying themselves. And then you're like, well, I'm not enjoying myself. I said I wanted to come to this building. You don't all have to come with me. You can all go and do something else. I guess this is also just my other point about travelling on on your own is that there's a tendency to think you've got to take a year off or 12 weeks and have a sabbatical from work or if you didn't do it when you were 18, that there isn't an opportunity to do that now as as an adult. And I think it's just great to take four days, take a week out of your life, book a city break. And I am somebody who loves writing and travelling in cities, so I am a bit biased. But I do think cities make a great travelling alone holiday. Mm. And in fact, they're they're just perfect for it, really. And you you don't have to have a massive amount of time off work to do it either. It is expensive to travel by yourself, though. Way more expensive than it is to travel as part of a 
at least a couple. Well, I mean, you're not sharing a room, are yeah. you? So, yeah. But there are massive supplements waps on you in hotels. Less so, I think, than they used to be. Do you think it has changed, Laura? I definitely think it's changed. I think when I first started writing about travel in 2002, 2003, there was a very limited market. There was a very uh, only just a handful of people who were offering tours for, for solo travellers and now actually I think things have changed I mean one of my, my top tips is to just always look for hotels for example offering per night room rates rather than per person and good tip. that can really really help actually in terms of cutting costs as well, I mean there are sometimes supplements and also the other thing to watch out for is that if you're on your own sometimes you do get shoved in the worst room in a hotel so actually it's kind of worth on booking asking what room you're going to be in I think that's definitely something that's really key. But there's also absolutely loads of fantastic companies out there now that didn't exist even a few years ago. So one of them is called the Flash Pack. It's founded by two friends, basically, who found... In Max? (laughs) Not in Max, no, actually. It's a company that's totally aimed at holidays for people who are in their 30s and 40s who want to travel on their own. They might be single, they might just feel that that that's what they want to do. And they do kind of small group tours all across the world. You can go and see the Northern Lights in Finland. They've got the uh, South African garden routes. I mean, it's an incredible range of tours on offer. And it's directly aimed at, at people who just really want to go and have a solo adventure. Are they quite expensive? Because my mum is obviously not in her 30s or 40s, but Kath has done a couple of these. She went to China. and she went China? To, she went to China and she went to Uzbekistan. Fact. She's so exotic, your mum. In it, uh, she like is well into the Silk Road or something. I don't fucking know. Anyway, um, but really, yeah. I, I think maybe she's thinking of a different Silk Road than I am. <laughs> what Silk Road? <laughs> are you Very different of? Silk Road, I think. Oh, who knows? Kath is a woman of mystery. Okay, and these are yeah. pretty niche destinations. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, she's Uzbekistan's definitely not in your average kind of. No, yeah, a, I don't think Thompsons go there. No, no choice. I think it's called Tui now, actually. Oh, yeah, isn't it? There is a cultural aspect, though, in a number of places that, for example, um, and without wanting to tar all people with the same brush, but there are certain cultures that are a bit more grabby-feely than other cultures. Yeah. Uh, a lot in Southern Europe, I would say. I've been mm. Italy's quite grabby place. And they, they make cat noises at you. Yeah. They used to be the uh, tip they used to give to single travellers is that you should wear a wedding ring. Oh. Wow. Yeah. yeah there's some places where like that wouldn't even... That wouldn't necessarily be. stop. Yeah. Encourage them. Yeah. No. It's so I think it is different for a woman to travel alone than a, than a man. I think it is. I think picking your destination wisely is really key. So for example, in Vietnam, I would always say as a female traveller, go to Hanoi rather than Ho Chi Minh. Ho Chi Minh is really overwhelming, whereas Hanoi is just a super friendly city. And... And it, it doesn't really, there's not really that kind of macho culture there. It's certainly not that I've experienced anyway. In the time that I've been travelling, I've had very, very few instances. And I don't, I think I feel just safe in the world now in a way that perhaps I didn't even 10 years ago. And I do think that things have definitely changed. But as I say, I think picking your destination is, is a really key thing. So for example, if India seems a bit daunting, then going somewhere like Sri Lanka... This is just a brilliant gateway into into the kind of culture in 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 Asia that that you can just experience relatively cheaply and without any hassle at all. Do you have any sort of practical tips that you could pass on for birds flying solo? I think the first thing is for me anyway is actually that solo travel doesn't have to be trekking around the Amazon. Actually, getting used to just being on your own by doing things locally to start with. So actually, just even going to the cinema, going to an exhibition on your own, getting used to just spending time on your own and 
enjoying that is really key. And also, I think I think eating out is the thing that scares people the most. Mm. I think those evenings where you're spending time on your own in a restaurant can seem a bit daunting. That's where I think city breaks are brilliant because a lot of restaurants in cities will have a bar area that you can go and sit at. But also, if you do want to enjoy some fine dining, you know, phoning a restaurant beforehand and asking whether they could perhaps place you towards the back of the restaurant so that you're not overlooked, I think that can, that can really help. And I've done that in New York and Paris before, and it's worked really well. I've got to admit, actually, eating on my own in restaurants, not keen on doing that. I don't really do it here. Like, I wouldn't necessarily be like, oh, I think I'll go out for dinner by myself tonight. But obviously, when I went to the States for a couple of months with Beyonce and my bike, I had to do it quite a lot just because I had to eat. Yeah. And there would be some places where like, I'd be in, you know, like the middle of fucking nowhere in the deep south and I'd walk past somewhere and be like, I'm not going in there. Not because I was like necessarily... Not because I thought anything bad would happen, just because I couldn't be bothered to have people like look at me like I was a weird stranger. I think when I went away on my own last year, the line I said most was, yep, just me, because I just get, just you, yep, just me. I will say, as someone who's eaten by themselves for a long time, that mobile phones are a great friend now that they didn't used to be. You were a lot more exposed sitting in a restaurant Mm -hmm. by yourself Okay, maybe you'd have a newspaper or a book with you than than you are. I mean, sorry, I'm, what are they? I don't remember them. Yeah, I'm quite happy to sit by. But the idea that suddenly you're like, oh, oh, I just pick up my phone and do some stuff on it, and <laughs> yeah. it, and it's just it is a bit of a sort of barrier. I think the more you do it, the more immune you become, yeah. to, and also just unashamedly happy to just bat people away if mm. they do start talking to you. That just you know. Making sure that you learn how to say no, I think, and be quite firm about it. I think body language has a lot to do with that as well. Yeah. I'm sitting with my arms crossed right now. I'm kind of half crossed. Hannah's on a... I thought you were on your phone, mate. No. <laughs> we're not in a restaurant. <laughs> Where have you got planned to go on your own this year? I've just come back from Malta, which was a really great 48-hour city break in Valletta, uh, where I was on my own. Vienna is my next well, I, adventure. I went to Vienna by myself. Mm. Yeah, really I did, I did something ridiculously cool <laughs> in Vienna. I went into the sewers and up through one of those box things, like in the third man. Like in Ratatouille? No, like oh, in the third man. idea of really cool. It was. And then yeah, on, so there was loads of really, really fun, <laughs> fun Irish academics on that tour. And we went out and we got really drunk. And it was, that does sound wicked. Yeah. But also, I'm off, I'm off to Bath next week, actually, on my own for mm-hmm. three days, what? I think. Are you going to go to the Jane Austen Museum? I probably am. I'm going to go to the Fashion Museum. I'm going to go to the spa on my own. Yeah. And, and oh, I've been not? there. It's, oh, it's lovely. Nice. I've yeah. been there. Bath is nice. Yeah, Bath's nice, isn't it? Yeah, and I think sometimes actually travelling in the UK on your own, as I say, you don't. it doesn't have to be exotic. You don't have to go to the Amazon for three months. You don't have to trek across the Sahara. You can just do whatever the hell you like for whatever period of time you like. And there's something just incredibly liberating about that. Certainly there was for me. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Hello, we are joined in the studio by Sophie Shapter, who is the Cox from the Cambridge Women's Rowing Team, who has come in to talk to us about rowing. Coxing and the boat race. And the boat race. Is that a verb, to cox? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And the cox, what do they actually do? (laughs) Okay, so first off, we steer the boat. 
So we have two handles that are attached to string to the rudder. Then we command the boat. So we basically just tell all the rowers what to do, uh, which is quite fun. And we motivate the crew as well. So when we're racing, I basically say, you know, come on, we're doing well. Let's keep going kind of thing. And just organising everything really, pretty much. I'm kind of sort of in between the rowers and the coach. So I'm like a mini coach, basically. So you're kind of the captain. Kind of, yeah. 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 Do you ever wear a pirate costume? <laughs> no. Sorry. <laughs> Can I ask how you end up being the cops? So I started rowing at school and basically one of the coaches said, hey, you know what, you're, you're a bit small for this. Why don't you sit there? So I sat in the cox's seat and stayed there. Yes, because rowers are generally pretty tall right like obviously the longer your arms are the mm-hmm. more you can row <laughs> yeah i believe is the technical way of putting it. <laughs> it's, about, it's a yeah. shame we don't have anyone here to ask what the technical term might be <laughs> yeah yeah i would like to know what kind of motivational things would you shout at your team if it's going well what would you say oh it's difficult so it's more like reminding them how much they've trained for that race especially for the boat race you know Mm -hmm. we've been training since september even before that kind of training started in summer really Mm -hmm. when people are at home and things like that so it's kind of like you know you've trained so much for this you've worked so hard for this don't and is this with a megaphone no so i have a little microphone it's a bit like it's a bit weird it's a bit like britney spears type lovely like bluetooth (laughs) (laughs) not quite that technical but yeah it looks like one of those bluetooth things that taxi drivers so it would be really hard to earnestly deliver a motivation like through a megaphone. Oh, right? no, no, You've no, worked no, really hard for this. You haven't walked alongside the river in Cambridge. I've heard that yeah. you usually get yeah. someone on a bicycle with a megaphone but also mm-hmm. motivating the fuck She's steering a boat. She's got no answer for a megaphone. Yeah, good point. Unless yeah. she wears it like a harmonica. I swear on the Olympics they used to, like back in the day. I swear they used Back to have a in the megaphone. day, they did have like a cone or something. Yeah. A cone? Yeah, like a, you know, one of those, I don't know. They had a can. Yeah. Two cans and a piece of string. <laughs> and everyone had a can along the way. Yeah. But no, luckily we've got the technology now that I've got a thing called a cox box, which is this kind of piece of technology that you plug the microphone in and then you plug it into the boat and then there's speakers down the boat so you, everyone can hear me. I still Sorry. want to know the motivational uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, Chat. so... Um, a lot of it is kind of like, okay, we've got one kilometre to, to go or 500 metres to go. So it's kind of so distances. Facts. Yeah. facts like that. Things like, you know, what are Oxford doing right now? Ooh. Think about that, that kind of thing. Mental games, yeah. mind games. A lot of that kind of thing. Thinking about how we want to be better than other people and assert our dominance. That do you get, thing, do you get really. angry? Yeah, a little bit. Do you? Yeah. Do you get a bit rudgy? Yeah, oh, a I love bit. this. Do you yeah. ever say Ow. you're doing shit, you need to crack on? <laughs> no, <laughs> Are there no, any like anti motivational? Really. I mean, you can kind of. You could be yeah. like, this isn't good enough. Come on, let's up our game. Okay. But you wouldn't be like, guys, this is. I want it to be like Full Metal Jacket. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a pre-planned strategy that you stick to or does it reveal itself as as the race goes on? Yeah, we have a race plan for every race. So it's pretty much sticking to the structure, but then sometimes there's something might happen and you have to kind of have like a quick think reaction to it and be like, ah, okay, this this has happened. So for example, there might be um, a boat that we're really close to and we're like, okay, scrap the plan for two minutes. We're going to go for that boat or something like that. But generally you stick to the plan and everyone knows the plan and you go over it, especially for the boat race. You know, it's such an important one race. You can't afford to mess it up. So we have a pretty structured plan for that. And do you do the same training as they do? No. You don't? (laughs) 
So when we go on the river, I'm obviously coxing, so I'm not doing the, the exercise. And then when we do the land training, I don't have to go to their weight sessions. They do two weight sessions a week. And then they also do two sessions on the rowing machines, which I go and watch and kind of make sure that you know do you shout motivational stuff at them <laughs> you not really sometimes <laughs> but generally i just watch that and take down the scores and then upload them into this little data entry thing we have online because it's often they're the person who gets blamed if it goes badly wrong and they're yeah. the person who gets the credit <laughs> if it's so you have a, a tough job well, yeah. you're the captain yeah 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 basically. a bit like the jockey of the horse in a way yeah. as well you know you're you're in control but to an know. extent. And it doesn't yeah. matter yeah. if you're tiny. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't matter. It's, it's actually beneficial. Yeah. You're in control, but they might freak out if they see a carrier bag. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Tell us about the boat race. Is this the second year it's been televised? I think it's the third year. The third year the women's has been on the mm. Tideway televised, yeah. You haven't really known it with it not be televised, but that, does that add excitement or pressure or is it you just treat it like any other? Yeah, it does. It adds both. It adds a lot of excitement because it's such a big thing now and so many people are watching it. I think like, 15 million people watch it or something mm. which is that's almost as insane. many listeners as we've got yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah so in, in that sense it's it's really exciting but then also it's like whoa that's crazy that many people are going to be watching us hopefully doing our stuff well but you know don't mess it up because 15 million people are watching so yeah it does add pressure and i think that is something that's completely different to any other race but we have to treat it exactly the same as any other race because that's the only way you're going to sort of get over it i guess is the rivalry between the two teams like genuinely really fearsome or do you have really it's kind of like you know when you watch the politicians going into the houses of commons like actually they look like they were sort of basically sort of fundamentally quite friendly towards each other felt that they had underneath it some kind of level of respect for one another is it like that yeah it is like that so for example last monday we had the official kind of crew announcement and weigh-in so oxford and cambridge men and women were all together Mm -hmm. we had photos taken um we had to this is a bit weird you have to line up and you get called up and you have to stand on a stage and weigh you weigh yourself like boxing. front, yeah, yeah. So that was a bit strange. Oh, is it like um, boxing? Do you have like music when you do a? Yeah, do you yeah. get really close up to each other? <laughs> no, and stare I wish awkwardly. that would be hilarious. No, we shake hands and you stand on your individual scales, um, which is. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you weighed the whole team at once. <laughs> <laughs> that was just like a massive. That would have been really cool. No, they just add it up at the end, and they're like, "Oh, this crew's heavier." And um, that's that's a bad thing, is it? No, it's well, it's an advantage, the, it's, probably, it's, isn't it? It's a kind of advantage, but it's right. also neither really. It just it's something that people read into, but it doesn't really mean anything uh, at all. Well, like Serena Williams, for example, is really short for a tennis player. Yeah, she is. She is quite good though. Yeah, yeah. She, yeah. Is, she she's is. all right. She's all right and considering yeah. she's five foot seven. Michael Johnson, entirely wrong size and shape to be a sprinter. He's done all right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Usain Bolt, very yeah. much the wrong <laughs> shape and size to be a sprinter. Again, not bad. What's your favourite bit of being a cox, of coxing? I think being able to tell people what to do is quite fun. I yeah. tell that you're really enjoying that. <laughs> yeah, kind yeah, of it's good. Control and... freakery. <laughs> <laughs> Almost. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's part of being a team and being the one that kind of pulls everything together, which is quite nice. Being the coach, but also being part of the team very much so. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. You get to coach and you get to be one of the athletes, so... I quite like that sense of it. 
And obviously, when we're talking to you, there's been a really the, the snowmageddon. Snow snowmageddon's happened. Mm. Yeah. But you have to go out there and train, I guess. Yep. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday last week, we're, we were out at six thirty in the morning, and that was is in the a, midst of yep. Is there a six basely acely yeah. whatever it was? The beast yeah. from the east. Yeah. The bear. It was horrible. Yeah. Really horrible. Have you not? You've not become attuned to that. You don't feel the cold anymore. Not that cold. It was like minus five, I think, which is really cold for this country. And do you get wind chill? Because I guess, how much energy are you expending by steering? Because there must be no. Oh, so you get to wrap up though. Yeah. So do you have like a like a mug, like some sort of with like a suit going in? So on Tuesday morning, weight was (laughs) was all the pot noodles. On Tuesday morning, I wore 10 layers. What? Yeah. Did you have a hot water bottle down your pants? No, That's what I, I didn't. Do. I, I thought tip. about it, but I was like, oh, no. And then I had four pairs of socks on, two pairs of gloves, and two hats. Like, you're sitting still, you're going to yeah. get the coldest. Yeah. And there's like so wind cold. coming off the river. Yeah, and then occasionally you get a splash and you're like, oh, <laughs> my face. I mean, I quite often just wear two pairs of socks just in life, just in general. <laughs> yeah. I think get very cold. She's very much the hedonist mm. of the group, Jen. <laughs> Are you able to carry on being the Cox next year? Is this your no. last year? Yeah, so I'm only oh. doing a Masters, so I'm only here at Cambridge for one year. So one year to make the, the dream happen. So where so where next in a sporting way? I don't know. I I think to be honest, I've been coxing for almost ten years. So wow. I'm kind of done. You this coxed is, out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is like my Olympics, I suppose. Like, you know, I'm this is something I've been wanting to do for such a long time. I grew up in Putney, which is where the start of the boat race is. So it's been something that I've watched as a kid, even before I started the whole coxing mm. thing. So for me, that's like, it's a really cool thing to do. And basically, once I've done it, and hopefully we win, but who knows, I think that's me done for quite a while. I might come back to it, but I don't know. I'm not sure yet. I know it's only a, it's literally a two-horse race, but without horses. Is there a prediction? Hannah does love a bet. I do love, well, it's a ve- virtually no point betting on oh, a two-horse race. Like, yeah, because the odds yeah. are, and, not, I mean, unless it, it turned out that when Sophie came, she was like 90 and the team were all really old, <laughs> in which case you would get good odds on Oxford. But Oxford are the underdogs because basically they've had a few coach issues. They've this year had a new coach come in. So, and they had a lot of their girls leave last year. So there's been a lot of movement in the club. So it's not as settled as us. We've had our coach, Rob, for quite a few years. He's been at Cambridge now, but he's done a lot with the girls and the men's team as well. Do you share a coach? No, we don't. But he used to be a coach on the men's team and then he moved to the women's team. So he's been at Cambridge for a long time, basically, because he's been in the job for for longer than five years. He knows it inside out and he knows what needs to be done and things like that. So it gives us a bit of an advantage, I would say. Excellent. You've got that continuity. Yeah. So where and when are we watching the boat race? It's the 24th of March. 4.31 p.m. is the women's race. Could you be more precise, please? <laughs> so random. That is really weird. I know, really bizarre. <laughs> Sorry. On BBC One or two? I'm not sure. it would probably okay. be BBC One. one. I would yeah, imagine. Yeah, so, yeah. With Claire Balding. Yeah. Of yeah. Who, friend, friend of the show. Friend of the show. Yeah. 
She's lovely. Yeah. We are unashamedly, like, pro-Cambridge, clearly. Um, <laughs> sorry, listeners in Oxford, but we don't want you to win. Um, <laughs> sorry you've had a shit year in everything, but, you know. But, yeah, yeah. well. The best of luck to you, and yeah. thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy, what Disney did you do this week? This week I watched 1999's Tarzan, which Wikipedia describes as the last film produced during the Disney Renaissance era, which might be historically accurate, but I'm not quite so sure about the rest. Let's get to that later. It's based on the story of Tarzan of the Apes by Edgar Rice Burroughs. I'd never seen it before. In fact, I didn't even know it existed until I started doing... I believe he does Disney. Have you guys seen it? I have not seen it. I used to watch a lot of Tarzan films as a kid, though, with my granddad. Have um, you seen Greystoke? The one with Christopher Lambert in. Oh, no. Oh, Christopher Lambert of um, Highlander? Yeah. Oh, no. Should I? Um, I mean, no, it's not great, but oh. it, it's the the one that, that most people seem to have seen. There can be only one. Oh, it's different. It's a different yeah. film. Okay. Jen? Obviously not, no. No Tarzan knowledge. No, no fun Tarzan facts you want to throw in. I feel like I might have studied Tarzan a bit in a course at university. Really? Yeah. I did a course called uh, Film and History where you watched a load of old films and then basically went, yes, well racist. And then you had to like write your own idea for a, a film about a historical thing. And my idea was um, a film about Ivan the Terrible's beard trimmer. Okay. As in the man employed to trim his beard. <laughs> I didn't get a very high mark. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, Last week, Jen mentioned a game called The Super Seducer that Sony had pulled, I think, from sale. And I think that Tarzan clearly got some of his lines from that. Me, Tarzan, you, Jane. Yeah. Face jizz. <laughs> <laughs> that would make this a very different Disney film. But... <laughs> Wouldn't it? Or would it? I don't know, Yana. <laughs> Did you like it? <laughs> Did I like it? Anyone who listens in every week will probably know the last two films I've watched got five stars. Count them. Five stars. Which is probably not entirely representative of how Dunleavy does Disney goes every week. And this week I started to watch a few things and they were all incredibly dull. Which doesn't really make for entertaining copy. So last night, which is actually quite late for me to be leaving this after enduring 10 minutes of three different decidedly average films, I decided to try Tarzan. And I thought, if this doesn't do anything for me to inspire some jokes in the first five minutes, I'm just going to scrub Dunleavy Does Disney this week. So I turn it on. Film opens on a family escaping from a ship that's not just sinking, but is also on fire. It's a classic. It's like all the Disney tropes (laughs) together. Which is very dramatic, obviously. Right, just a big dramatic scene. And then, in kicks Phil Collins. <laughs> and I have... twice. I have found my film for the week. I was literally banging my hands together with glee. Why? Because you can't hurry, love. No, you just have to win. Because the last thing that any film needs it's in Phil the world Collins. is Phil Collins. Apart from Buster... It's a great my brother film. is obsessed with that film and I just don't understand. Like, 25 years later, I still don't understand 
Why? Well, when we get to Dunleavy does Phil Collins. <laughs> oh, wait, that's a very different yeah. section. Sorry. I don't know. It's kind of this. Um, <laughs> so the mummy and the daddy and the little baby, they make it to land on a little boat. They build a house high in a tree. And all of this action is interspersed with a story that's playing out in the ape world where a mummy ape loses her baby ape to a nasty bastard leopardess. All while Phil Collins sings a song about feelings. How long does this song last for? Basically the entire <laughs> film, right? <laughs> and now just to be clear, this isn't a character being played by Phil Collins singing a song. This is just Phil Collins singing, right? Just Phil Collins. As if, you know, the kids are in some way clamouring for a way to get more Phil Collins into their life. Because kids love Phil Collins. Yeah. It's well documented. It really is. He has to have a special force field to fight them off. Anywho, soon the mummy gorilla hears a baby crying and she rushes to the treehouse to find... Phil Collins. <laughs> he does if, look like an angry baby. If only. To find, right... And, well, this bit, actually, like all the deaths in this film, is proper fudged to such a degree that I'm not entirely sure kids would get what it is that she actually does find. Basically, what's happened is the leopardess has been in there, killed the parents, and the baby's left on its own, right? So the ape takes the baby human, and the leopardess comes back, you know, with a sort of tenacity my cats only show when trying to break into the pet food stash. (laughs) pushed a metal box off the side together so the lid popped off so they could get in. That's very clever. Yeah. Ape Mummy and Baby Tarzan escape and we all celebrate with... Some Phil, Phil Collins. Collins. <laughs> it's a bit more <laughs> Phil Collins. It sounds to me like Phil Collins' music attracts leopards. Isn't this, <laughs> isn't this the best start to a film ever? Ever. <laughs> We're only about five minutes in. We've had two Phil Collins songs already. So, Mummy Ape, who is played by Glenn no, Collins. Close. <laughs> Glenn Close. She persuades the King Ape to let her bring up the baby as her own, although he's not too keen on the idea of anyone calling this his actual son. We leap forward in time a little bit to Tarzan being a little boy, when a lot of what Len Goodman would term as messing about leads Tarzan to decide he's going to become the best ape he can possibly be. Q training montage. Oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> Q Phil Collins. Oh, yes. <laughs> Joe, you box. When you box, do you listen to Phil Collins? Always. It's how I like to uh, find my inner. Um, I don't know. Anger. Do you have a photograph of Phil Collins that you put on the boxing pigeon? What are they? Boxing pigeon. <laughs> what are they called? Punch bag, mate. Yeah, that's it. The, yeah, boxing pigeon. I can't tell you the number of children I see out training in the streets. Listening to Phil Collins. Listening to Phil Collins. <laughs> it's not really like the banging soundtrack you want, is uh, it? Punch twice. Yeah. Well, like, you know, a bit of in the air tonight, you know. Yeah. It's not, it doesn't really have like. I can see me running in the streets tonight. It's not the right rhythm, is it? Montage. <laughs> I think Mickey's just proved you wrong, Jen. Run slower, guys. So. During this montage, the man-child morphs into this crazy-looking pointy-faced adult. Like, really, you could cut a cheesecake with his chin. (laughs) But there's trouble brewing, because back comes that bloody leopardess. Attracted by the Phil Collins music. (laughs) (laughs) She attacks the king ape, who's saved by Tarzan, 
which you would think means that the king ape is no longer the king ape. But Tarzan gives him the dead leopardess as a gift and then everything's okay, contrary to what actual nature would tell you. But hey, what's that noise they hear in the distance? Hang on. <laughs> Hang on. No, it's human ruddy beings. The human beings are Clayton, who's the guide and bodyguard for uh, father and daughter team. Mr. Porter, who appears to have been created from old sketches of Belle's dad in Beauty and the Beast and is voiced by the brilliant Nigel Hawthorne. And Jane, who's a spirited posh bird, played by Minnie Driver. Clayton, if you're interested, is voiced by Brian Blessed. Don't tell anyone! (laughs) (laughs) Or possibly Mickey, pretending to be Brian Blessed. I don't know. I didn't actually look too closely at the credits. Jane immediately annoys a bunch of gibbons and is rescued. (laughs) (laughs) We've all been there. So easily riled. Honestly, about 20,000 of them start chasing her. And she's rescued by Tarzan in this really dizzying chase scene, which is equal parts CGI magic and completely ridiculous. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, there hasn't been a Phil Collins song in a while. Genuinely thinking that. But instead, we get some weird jazz riff in where some of the young gorillas break into the camp and smash stuff up musically, which is really weird, but obviously better than a Phil Collins song. (laughs) So there you have it. Tarzan eventually turns up at the camp where the humans are too in order to learn stuff from the pretty lady, which takes the form of... Jizzing in her face. You've guessed it. A Phil Collins montage. A montage. <laughs> accompanied by... You've guessed it. A <laughs> Phil Collins song. And for the need to reiterate the point I made earlier, this isn't a character singing a song relevant to the plot. This is just Phil Collins Is this, ba- is this basically singing. like a Phil Collins concept album? Like, did he just go, I'd really like to make an album... About, about monkeys. About monkeys and about Tarzan. And Disney went, great, we've got just... We've got a really, you know, just the film for this film. It must have at least two montage scenes in it, I yeah. think. Yeah. Now, all of this eventually plays out exactly how you'd expect it to. Mankind are some slippery fucks and gorillas mm. are nice people I thought you meant like a number one smash hit and then (laughs) divorcing your wife by fax (laughs) everybody well most people in this gets to live happily ever after cue Phil Collins (laughs) so what else can I tell you let's talk about the animation which was really highly praised at the time and I think it's because it contains all these CGI scenes of peril and sliding along branches and people surviving the sort of falls that even Peter Jackson would balk at you know what? A lot of the rest of the animation is shit. The King Gorilla is so badly drawn, he looks like he's wearing a police helmet. <laughs> <laughs> and Tarzan's hair is completely stupid. They seem to have decided that what would happen to Tarzan's hair in that situation is it would dreadlock. Which okay. actually seems like a reasonable point to yeah. make. Not but then they either lack the knowledge or the will to actually draw dreadlocks so it's just in several chunks like medusa these big curly chunks of hair it just looks shit disney's fascination with waterfalls continues to the degree that this film contains a waterfall that is surely visible from space (laughs) does it sound like phil collins (laughs) there are good female characters although i have to say i didn't really warm to any of them jane herself is a lot better than most romantic interests but given that she she does have the most 
preposterously tiny waist, which just can't go without comment. Even is that why the Gibbons were annoyed? Even given the style of the day was to have a ridiculously small waist. When's it from? It's Victorian, about 1870s. Okay. And also she is an irritant of Gibbons, and I know how you feel about that, Anna. Yeah. There is a bit that made me laugh, albeit it was unintentional. <laughs> All of it. Yeah. A Phil Collins song. Or another bit that not Phil Collins related. When Tarzan decides he, decides he wants to join the men, he puts his dad's suit on. Because everybody knows that putting on a suit is the way to signal that you mean business. Yeah. You know, unless you're Kenneth Williams, in which case it means you're going to the beach. But there's a strange thing about this film in which it contains a a number of rather unpleasant deaths, which it decides to show somewhat obliquely, meaning I'm not entirely sure it's ever going to be really clear to kids that that's what's actually happened. You don't see Tarzan's parents die. Obviously, they get torn apart by a cat, but you don't know that. They just go into a room and there's some bodies just lying there and it's not particularly clear what's happened to them. It's not particularly clear what's happened to the the gorilla baby at the start. Clayton has a death that they want to show it, but then they're obviously scared to show it, so they show it in one single flash as a shadow of him hanging from a tree, which is what happens to him. Don't show anyone. Yeah, quite. Poor brain. So, in answer to your question, I had a lot of fun watching this, <laughs> but it doesn't necessarily equate to liking it. What score are we going to give it? I'm going to give it two. Two, two what, what? Hannah? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give it two gorillas playing drums to In the Air tonight. <laughs> Lovely. Nice. That's all from us this week. Thanks for joining us. We hope you had a lovely time. We always have a lovely time. We don't want to be smug about it, but it's sort of true. If you enjoyed our chat with Dr. Terry Simpkin about imposter phenomenon, or more commonly known imposter syndrome, this week, then have a little listen on Sunday to our Sunday Chops, which is the full interview in which she cures Hannah and all sorts of other things. Very, very, very interesting stuff. Next week is a gig cast week, so you will get the wonderful, incredible Jennifer Saunders, Desiree Birch and Joe Caulfield in your ears, thanks to a recording of our January show. And while we're on the subject of our excellent shows, you can get tickets to see us in the real world and not just hear us in your ears, as you do most weeks. You can go to Sarah's website, www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue to find out all sorts of information on the shows that we have coming up, including where you can get tickets. And indeed, the next show we have is in April, and that's at the Leicester Square Theatre in London. It's April the 29th, and we are well excited because we've got Lucy Mangan, Shazia Mirza, the Mash reports Rachel Paris and just announced last week Ruby freaking Wax. So do get your tickets. And also we've got you asked for it and and indeed we listened. We've got a gig in Manchester. Well, Salford Keys, more precise, but in Manchester on May the twentieth, and that will be with Mickey and Hannah chatting to the wonderful Lou Conran and also. Julie Hesmanhow. I think that's how you say her name, but, you know, there's always a danger. Very, very, very excited about that. Please do have a look on Sarah's website, and, yeah, book yourself a ticket. It's going to be awesome. And we've got loads more announcements coming up about future shows, so, yeah, it's always worth keeping your eye open. 
We have got a playlist this week, as with every week. I say every week, it's quite recent, isn't it? But we've got a playlist this week which is themed on the boat race. Not a lot of women perform songs about boats, apparently. Yeah, so I'm going to start a campaign on the basis of this to get more women writing and singing songs about boats, please. Or just more women in the music industry in general. Thanks. I knew you'd understand music industry. Anyway, that's enough for me because I've wanged on for like half of your natural life. So please do join us next week and um, please do listen to our chops. And for now, to any weenie last bit of admin, please do rate and review us on iTunes. It's ever so helpful if you just say we're excellent rather than we're shit. Um, And obviously we are excellent, so it's not going to be a lie. You can find us on Twitter, at Standard Issue UK, on Facebook and indeed on Instagram. Now, that's it for me. All that remains for me to say is indeed... Stay frosty, champs. Standard issue for all women.